My name is Jeff. It is good to be with you today. I um, want to say uh, welcome. Uh, those of you who may be seated at one of our campuses today or maybe you're joining us online, um, we are grateful for the chance to be together today. Um, man, I am glad that the Chiefs are good. That's weak. Do you remember how bad they were? I'm going to try this one more time. Man, I am glad that the Chiefs are good. Especially because right now my Tigers stink, all right? It's just kind of rough. But we are learning to recognize our blessings, right, in the middle of everything that we go through. And I'm just reminding you today that you may have to go through, right, this whole COVID experience, but you get to go through it as world champions. I'm just reminding you, right? Not the whole, most of the world can't say that. Now, my football career began in what in that day was called peewee football in Mississippi. I mean, just a little kid playing peewee football. I'm sure it was comical. It had to be. I mean, I'm, I'm sure if you could watch it from a distance, just the, the comedy of, 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 but it was tackle, and it was a full team. I, I mean, it, it was like real football. And it was the chance as a kid to learn some of the fundamentals of how you play the game the right way. So they teach you how to tackle and all that kind of stuff. And one of the, one of the things they taught us, and don't be freaked out, Texas A&M is on this football. It's because it cost me like a dollar, all right? So don't, don't judge me. But it, it, the, the point is they would teach us, for example, how to carry the football. And what's called five points of contact when you carry a football. So you use your lower bicep, your forearm, your palm, your fingers, and your chest. That's five points of contact. So lower bicep, forearm, palm, fingers, wrap the edge, and your chest. So if you hold it high and tight is what it's called, then it's a lot harder for somebody to take the ball away. It's a lot harder for you to fumble. You carry the ball out here, lot less points of contact, right? Every once in a while you see somebody, right? Care, you, no, you, you, arm, forearm, palm, fingers, chest. And if you're really serious, it's, you're running into the middle of a line, right? It's the end of the game. You know they're trying to strip the ball. You do what? You put two hands on the ball. Two hands on the ball. Got it? Cool. I hope that helps you. Hope you have a great week. No. <laughs> I'm telling you that because there's something else that I learned a long time ago. I'm going to read it to you. Jesus is the one who says these words. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Watch this. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one 
can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What I learned a long time ago from John chapter 10, Jesus never fumbles, ever. And what we're talking about here is so much more important than a football. And in fact, he says, do you realize there are two hands involved in this carry? right? Jesus says, nobody can snatch them out of my hand. He says, the Father's hand, no one can ever take them from his hand. Now, in the church world, it is often spoken of with this little phrase, once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. And what we mean by that is when you entrust your life to Jesus, he will never fumble you. Romans says nothing can separate us from his love. Well, I'm bringing this up today because it is critical to the text that we're going to study here in a few minutes from Hebrews chapter 6. And it's going to take our understanding here, once saved, always saved, and it's going to cause us to stretch a little bit, and we understand a little deeper of what we mean by that. Hebrews chapter 6 is, in some people's minds, a most challenging chapter, but today we're going to tackle it. So here's what we're going to learn. Normally, I wouldn't give you all this up front, but I'm convinced that maybe we got we to gotta swallow this a couple of times today. So here's what I want you to see. Once saved, always saved. But here's what we're going to learn. But also means once saved, forever following. Because saving faith endures to the end. Once saved, always saved, but once saved, forever following. It means we are forever following Jesus. Once we say we trust him, we are forever following Jesus because saving faith endures to the end. Let me show you what I mean. Hebrews chapter 6, we're going to begin with verse 4. Let's read for a little bit. It is impossible for those, I want you to let those words sink in, impossible for those who, those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. The group of phrases there that I want us to wrestle with a little bit, it is impossible for those who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. What is he saying here? So here's the scene. you've You've got somebody who has received blessing. You've got somebody who has religious experiences. 
It it says that person, though, falls away, and in doing so, it's as though they they are re-crucifying the Son of God and putting him to open shame, and it is impossible to renew that person to repentance. In other words, the passage seems to be saying there is a spiritual condition that makes repentance and salvation impossible. And that condition may look like, in many ways, salvation, but it's not. So what did he say? He said it was a person who was enlightened, a person who, who, who now, they can see it, they understand it. Here is the good news of Jesus. I see. It says they've, they've tasted the heavenly gift. They've, I think he's talking about the Holy Spirit here. We'll talk about that some more in a minute. A person who has tasted the good word of God, right? Just like you're doing today. It's not whether or not I, I'm, I'm good in delivering. It's, it's you are tasting the good word of God. A person who has tasted the the power of the age to come, he says. Back in Hebrews chapter 2, around verse 4, he talks about, I think it's connected to signs and wonders, to, to the miraculous. And what he says is this person falls away from Christ, falls away from the Spirit, falls away from his word, falls away from the powers. He turns his back on those things and instead turns his heart toward other things. And the effect of this, he says, is to re-crucify Christ and to put him to public disgrace. Well, what does that mean? Well, what's happening? It's a person who turns their back on holiness, which is what the cross is designed to bring about. And instead, they say yes to unrighteousness and unbelief, which is, that's what nailed him there to start with. We crucify him again. A person who turns back to the world from Jesus, and in doing so is declaring that I love this of the world more than the love of Jesus, more than the wisdom of Jesus, more than the power of Jesus. It's the same as those who stood that day to drive the nails through his hands and his feet. What is happening in Hebrews chapter 6? Here's what's happening. The writer is addressing the fact that in every congregation of people who claim to gather in the name of Jesus, there are some people who just get caught up in the movement, that's what I'm going to call it, but have never, ever really dealt with Jesus. What I mean is people who will participate externally, right, they will show up. That's a choice. They will, they will get excited about what's going on, right? They might, they might learn some new songs and walk away from a given Sunday, go, man, I, re- I really like that song. I really like the way they put that together. They, they, might, they might learn to pray, to even pray the sinner's prayer, if you will. Maybe they would step into the baptistry and, and be baptized, maybe even join a small group. But the picture in Hebrews 6 is that they never, never, Embrace Jesus. 
And I believe what's being described in verse 4 and in verse 5, those, those pictures of enlightened and the picture of the Holy Spirit and the picture of God's word, I think it's drawing a picture of what happens when a congregation together experiences the power of God at work and sometimes even miracles take place and we see the supernatural. They're a part of that movement. They've shared in feeling those things. But according to Hebrews 6, their life does not reflect that Jesus is their king. Say, okay, but why does it say that repentance is impossible? Why is he using that language that there's this, there's this circumstance where repentance is not even possible? Why does he say that? Well, I need to tell you that the Bible speaks in various places about the possibility of a person rejecting God's voice so often and so decisively. So God speaks and they reject it. God speaks and they reject it. They reject his voice so often and so decisively that God finally honors their refusal and he leaves them alone forever. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus describes that occurrence by a phrase he calls blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is to reject him. It is where a person so decisively and so persistently says no to God that eventually God is willing to say, then have it your way. And Jesus said that is a sin for which there is no forgiveness. To reject him, ultimately, he says, there, there is no forgiveness. We're talking about someone who understands the gospel, understands the good news of Jesus. How does that even happen? Is the Holy Spirit who gives us eyes to, to see, but a person who is not moved to repentance they don't turn to Jesus. And the question is, well, what is there left to hear? What else do you add to that? Whew. Exciting chapter, isn't it? He's not done. Let's pick up with verse 9 because I want you to understand why the writer of Hebrews is talking to us about this. Verse 9, even though we speak like this, it's like he knows, he knows, man, I know. He's like, this, this, is, this is to your heart. This is, this is big stuff here. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust he will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you, watch this, to show 
this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully recognized. In other words, he's saying, look, despite the warnings, despite me talking to you about this this danger of falling away, he goes on to say, look, but many of you that I'm talking to, he says, I'm convinced that there are better things for you. Why does he say that about them? He says, because I look at your life and I can see the evidence, not only that you love people, but I can see the evidence that you love people because you love Jesus. Now that's a big deal because there are people who just care for other people, right? There are lots of people who just care for, for, for their neighbor or care for, but he's saying, no, the evidence is present in your life that I see you interacting. I see you loving. I see the fruit in your life that you care for other people. And it's because you love Jesus. He says, there's life changing you. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. The difference between saving faith and superficial faith is not the intensity of the emotion at the beginning. The difference in genuine faith, saving faith, versus a superficial faith is not the the intensity of the emotion at the beginning. The difference is the duration of the faith that is real. I've seen this in the years that God has allowed me to speak to people and share the gospel, and um, quite honestly, I have gotten to that place where I am always, always, always thrilled to hear when somebody says to me, Jeff, I I just trusted Jesus with my life. I sing. I celebrate, but you need to know there is another part of what I think in that moment based on what I read in Scripture. When someone says to me, I have entrusted my life to Jesus, there's a part of me that goes, yes, and there's a part of me that says, we'll see. We'll see. This time next year, we'll see. Because it's not measured by how intense of an emotion a person has at the beginning of that experience. It's measured by a faith that endures to the end. I, over the years, have done camps, um, thinking about football. I've done um, FCA camps and student camps and some stuff like that through the years. And I mean, I can, so many occasions where you get a bunch of students together and they spend a week together and nobody's sleeping, you know what I'm saying, and everybody, everybody's having, and you get in one of those worship nights and something gets said, some song gets sung that reminds a young lady of her boyfriend that she broke up with before she came to camp, and suddenly tears are flowing, and tears get contagious, and suddenly everybody's crying, and they're flooding the altar, and snot's flying, and, 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 it's, and everybody commits their life to be missionaries. And then the next morning, they've divided back into their little groups and deciding who they're going to care about and who they're not, 
who they treat as valuable and who not. Yeah. He's saying the ultimate measurement is not the intensity of the emotion that you feel in an initial engagement. No, it's an endurance. Praying a prayer to ask Jesus into your heart, even if it's followed by a flurry of emotion, and I'm going to say even some religious fervor, is not proof that you belong to Jesus. Enduring in that faith to the end, he says, is the evidence. So one more time, now that you've heard a little bit of the explanation, this is why we're saying it this way today. Once saved, always saved? Yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. I agree with it because I think Scripture teaches us. But what I also agree with is that once saved, forever following. Because saving faith endures to the end. Okay. So, so Jeff, if it was just me and you, and if, if it was just our conversation, I would have to admit to you sometimes I struggle. Jeff, sometimes I doubt. Jeff, sometimes I, f- I feel like my faith is not always, right, as, as warm as it should be. Does that mean that I'm not in? And I would point you to a healthy dose of the stories of Scripture. People like the Apostle Peter who denies Jesus three times in the space of an evening that I would argue might be the most important evening in the history of the world. But my point is, he comes back. He's restored. A John Mark. John Mark, you read his story in the New Testament. He was a, a one of the Apostle Paul's traveling companions, we're told that there's a moment where John Mark abandoned the mission field because it got so difficult. But later on, the story is, John Mark is back. He's back. How about King David in the Old Testament? I mean, man, a guy who obviously at times would so follow God's heart and yet His story is adultery, murder, lies about it, and for about a year or so, he refuses to repent. But he what? He comes back. Abraham, he's mentioned in this this chapter, Abraham doubted so much sometimes. One time he told another guy that Abraham's wife was actually his sister. That had some ramifications to it. But Abraham did that to save his own skin. But Abraham repents. He's back. So, Jeff, <laughs> exactly how long can you backslide? <laughs> like how, how long, how long can you do that before you conclude that your initial profession of faith, right, wasn't real. And I'm glad to tell you that the Bible does not answer that question. What it calls us to realize is that in every congregation of people, it is made up of both genuine 
and superficial believers. The better question, not how long can I stay away, the better question is where are you now? That's the question. And that's why he gives us Hebrews chapter 6. Are you turning toward Jesus or are you turning away from him? Some are away. Even right now, there are probably some people that you love, some people that you know, that you thought, you thought that they belonged to him, but right now their life is showing something very different. The fact is that some of them are going to come back. There will be repentance. But I'm also reminding you that there are places in the Bible where it says something different. Like the Apostle John who says in 1 John chapter 2, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Woo. It's because John knows the evidence is a faith that endures. And he's like, do they belong to us or not? And he goes, we'll see. We'll see. So let's clarify a few things because, man, I want to make sure that we understand what this text is saying and what it's not saying. So I want us to, to, to make sure we understand that what we're, what we're not saying today is that perseverance is perfection because it's not perseverance is not perfection. Enduring to the end does not mean that we who follow Jesus don't ever mess up, right? How about this proverb? If you've never, if you've never seen this proverb before, Proverbs chapter 24, verse 16, for though the righteous fall seven times, they what? They rise up. Now, does he mean that you get seven shots at this? Like, I give my life to Jesus and then I get seven shots? And, and No, that's not what he's saying. He's using that word to, to picture, look, if you trust him, you got a faith that's real, it doesn't mean that there are gonna, aren't going to be moments you struggle and, and, and mess up. He goes, and it's not going to be once. It's not probably going to be twice. It's not probably going to be three times. It's probably going to be a few more than you care to count. But you what? You back up. You turn again. The trajectory is heavenward. One of the unfortunate things of walking through this whole COVID season is that some of us have learned to read graphs again, right? And so, honestly, on a weekly basis, we're looking at numbers and we're looking at, at the graph, right? And so it's, 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 you know, calculating how many people have it in this county. And we got multiple counties when it comes to Heart of Life. And so we're looking at each one. And here's what we've learned. You know, this week it may be here. And then next week the number is here. And next week the number's here. And then the next week the number's here. But then the next week, the number's here. And then the next week, the number might be here. But then the next week, the number's here. And the point is not to put everything on that given week. We don't put all, right, the ducks in, in that given week. What we're looking at is the trajectory. We want it going this way. That's the one we're praying for, right? 
We want the trajectory going this way. Well, when it comes to your faith, you want it going this way. You want the trajectory to be your heart heavenward. Is your whole life a cry for God to change your heart? Not, were there any moments where you messed up? Were there any moments that you doubted? Were there any moments that you, that you sinned? Yeah, we know those are there. The question is, is the trajectory heavenward? And I'm going to say, if you're content with not growing, that is a strong sign that you may never have really ever tasted the good news of Jesus. To just be okay with where you are. Every follower of Jesus struggles with sin but it's those of you who are content with staying there. I worry about you the most. I worry about you the most. Maybe then your response would be, okay, so does that mean that I'm like can't turn to Jesus? Jeff, am I one of those people that's gone too far and too long and I can't come to him? I want to make sure that we get this clear today. If you want to turn to Jesus, then he will receive you. And the reason I know that is because the scripture tells us he will, he will not cast out for any reason those who come to him. If you turn to him, he will receive you. The, the warning though, Hebrews chapter 3, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because that's the picture. It's someone who says no over and over and over again. They're not saying no to coming to church, right? They're not saying no necessarily to maybe even praying and seeing spiritual things happen. But they're saying no to a life that is surrendered to Jesus. They're saying no to a life that says, I entrust everything to him. And he says, when you say no to him, it is hardening of a heart. But I would tell you today that if you're worried that you've committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you probably haven't. <laughs> the fact that you might fear it is a good indication that you probably haven't because the way God describes it in the Scripture and the way the writer of Hebrews is describing it here today, it is this picture of having reached the point that you don't want it anymore. You don't even think about it anymore. You don't even care about it anymore because your heart is so hardened. If you're thinking about it today, I'm telling you that's God who speaks. And the word is when you hear him speak, don't harden your heart, hear him. One more thing that I want to make sure we understand is that you should never give up on someone who needs to turn to Jesus. You should never give up on somebody who needs to turn to Jesus. If and when that person comes to the point that we're describing today, you won't know it because you don't know their heart, right? You, you don't know that depth in them. What we do know is that the Bible is full of stories of God saving people who look to everybody else like there was no hope. <laughs> 
story after story in scripture. I mean, how about the apostle Paul, right? People who look at lives and go, there's no hope there. And God goes, oh, yes, there is. Listen, the purpose of these warnings in Hebrews chapter 6 is not to help you and I diagnose who the stubborn people are so that we stop praying for them. That's not the point. The point is for us to feel the urgency of the situation so that we start praying even more persistently that we have eyes to see what is happening and the danger of the hardening of a heart. And so we pray even harder. We share with love until the day that they are no longer breathing. We have a responsibility to pray and they have an opportunity to repent. That's how we see it. Now, you hear all that, and I think for those of us who want a faith that endures, our tendency now turns to this. Whew, I want my faith to last, so I gotta figure out how to make it last. I want my faith to last, so I'm gonna take matters into my own hands. And how do I hold on to this? How do I keep it? And don't be mistaken, a part of Hebrews chapter 6 is going, come on, you you hold on. But there's more. I'm just going to read most of it to you, and then we're going to talk through a little piece of it, but I want you to hear what he says. Let's go back to verse 11, and we'll work our way toward the end here. Verse 11. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end, So that what you hope for, what you hope for, may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, right? So this is not just, he's saying, come on, you realize the urgency here. But to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So we got hope and we got a promise. When God made his promise to Abraham, Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. That's interesting. Saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves. And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear. To the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. Now, what in the world is happening here? Well, here's what he's saying. God did two things for Abraham. He made a promise to Abraham and he made an oath to Abraham. We think that's the same thing. No. First, he made a promise to Abraham. Abraham, you're going to be blessed. Your line's going to be blessed. Your descendants are going to multiply. You're going to see victory over enemies. This is God's promise to you. But then God made an oath about that promise. And the oath about the promise, it says God swore by himself. Right? So some of you grew up, like, you, you had mamas and grandmamas who told you, don't you swear to God, right? 
Don't you swear to God. I don't want to hear those words come out of your lips. Don't you swear to God. You know what God does right here? He swears to God. He swears on himself. Now, come on, we get this. When you want to get a point across in that you're trying to get someone to believe you, you want someone to believe the truthfulness of the promise that you made. You're like, I promise, right? I, I promise, I swear on the Bible. I, people swear on my mother's grave. I don't know where that started, but right, it's like, what are they, why are they doing that? What they're saying is, I'm so serious about this, and I love my mom so much that if I'm lying, it's as though she's lying. You understand? You're picking out something as valuable that you can think of as possible, and you're attaching your promise to it to say, look, let's put an end to this argument because what I'm saying, I mean. Well, you know what God does? When he gives the promise to Abraham and he says, says to his heirs, which that includes those of us that now through Jesus, we, we, we have the promise there's only one whose worth and honor and greatness is more than all the others combined, and that is God himself. And so when he swears, he swears by himself since there was no one greater, it says. Here's the point. Who God is grounds our hope in what he promises. Who God is, he swears by himself. In other words, it is unlikely, it's as unlikely that he will break this word of promise to bless as it is that he will despise himself. Ain't going to happen. Therefore, the point is the promise is true. So God's saying, I, I want you to have as much confidence in the hope of what has been promised to you as you possibly can have. And that means I swear by my own name. And he says, I want you to have this hope that you can take hold of the hope, he says in verse 18. And then in verse 19, he makes this statement. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. <laughs> an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. What anchors our soul is not something subjective. It is the objective reality of what our God has promised when he promises life that is eternal, when he promises heaven. That's not a, man, I hope so. That's a done. And that's his point. It's an, it's an anchor for your soul. This is, this is an objective reality that God has promised. He wants your hope to be absolutely sure. And so the three descriptions that he gives is he says this, this hope that's an anchor for your soul, it's firm, it's secure, and it's behind the curtain. Well, that's weird language. Well, behind the curtain is referring to what we sometimes refer to as the veil, that when you study about 
the tabernacle, which was the, the, the portable um, um, structure that God designed that his people would move from place to place as they wandered in the wilderness, and, and, and they would construct this tabernacle, this we would think of almost like a church building, if you will. It, it, is, it is where they came to offer the sacrifices. It is, it is where God's presence was recognized. Behind that veil was the Ark of the Covenant, and it was there that God would meet with the high priest once a year when that high priest brought the blood of the sacrifice to, to, to offer for the sins of the people to atone for them. And what we're being reminded of in Hebrews chapter 6 is that Jesus, as the high priest, entered the Holy of Holies, the presence of God. But what he did, he did once and for all because of his own infinitely precious blood that a sacrifice was made that atoned for our sin. It is perfect and it lasts forever. And so our anchor, the anchor for our soul, the anchor of the hope that we have is a promised future that is sure, it is steadfast, it is finished because of the purchased work of Jesus for you and me. What difference does that make? Here's the difference it makes. This hope that we have is not like simply an anchor that is dangling from heaven for us to do everything we can to hold on for dear life. No, the picture is an anchor firmly secure in heaven and an anchor that is firmly secure to your soul. Here's the statement, last statement I want you to see. We hold fast because we are held fast. We hold fast to this faith because we are held fast. Not too long ago, I was just reading, and um, that term hold fast is actually a nautical term. It's Dutch in origin, and it just simply means to hold on tight. And it was a nautical term because it was the the idea for those sailors that if they held on to the ropes of the ship, right? And even, even history tells us that it was common for those sailors to actually tattoo eight letters on their on their fingers, on their knuckles, if you will. So H O L D F A S T. And the reason they would tattoo those letters on their knuckles is so that in the middle of a storm, on the boat, in the ocean, and they're holding as tight as they can to those ropes, it was the reminder that if they would hold fast, right, everything that they could do physically, right, everything that they could do mentally, hold on to the ropes, it would be okay. And I'm saying for me, that is the picture that I want to leave you with today. I really thought about tattoos on my knuckles, but it seemed kind of permanent for just one illustration. But here's the imagery. 
Jesus said, those who come to me, no one can take you out of my hand. And no one is greater than the Father. No one takes you out of his hand. The image I want you to walk away with today is the hand of your Jesus and the hand of your heavenly Father. The two, they are one. With hands wrapped around you and you read, hold fast. Hold fast. He's the one who gives me the desire to fight, to keep my heart moving toward heaven. He's the one who gives me the power to hold on when things are difficult and I don't understand, but I'm saying, God, I want to trust you. God, I'm going to keep following. The reason I can hold fast is because he holds fast. One more time. Once saved, always saved. But once saved, forever following. Because saving faith endures to the end. I'm going to pray for us in just a second, and we're going to sing one more song um, that just kind of wraps up um, the truth that we've been wrestling with today. Um, when you hear this song, um, some of you, I, I think there's a potential that it's like, oh, I really like that. And you may really like that because it's old. And I'm not saying you're old. I'm just saying that if you grew up in church, um, if, you got, if you got enough birthdays, it'll make you remember when you were a kid maybe. And it's one of those songs that was written a long time ago. And, but I find that sometimes we sing those songs just like we do some that are written today, and we got no clue what that means. Today, I, I want to encourage you to sing it, for one. If you're, if you're going to fight to help keep your trajectory right, following him, man, you need to be together and to sing and to encourage one another. I want to encourage you to sing. You're going to hear a little bit of strange language in this song because, like the word Ebenezer. Like, I don't know what Ebenezer means. Well, when you hear it in this song, here's what you can think of. Stone of help. Stone of help. That's what Ebenezer means. It's an old story from Samuel, prophet Samuel. God gives them victory and God instructs him to set up a stone so that every time the people see the stone, they remember the truth. God helps. So when you hear the word Ebenezer, that's what it means. Uh, the word fetter is in the song. <laughs> we don't use the word fetter very much anymore. Um, fetter usually refers to some sort of a chain or a shackle. Usually it's like people's feet are, are fettered. But, uh, but the language in this song goes um, more like this. Let thy goodness like a fetter. Talking to God. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. 
Here's my heart, Lord. Will you take and seal it? Seal it for thy courts above. I'm going to pray for you today. My prayer is that you know Jesus. My prayer is that you know Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, the good news is that he died for sin and he arose from the dead. And that all who will turn to him, that's called repentance, and trust him, it's called faith, he really will forgive sin. Man, if you've never done that, I want to encourage you to take that step. You can do it right where you are in your home, wherever you may be. It's not about the magic words. It's about a heart that longs for him. I would tell you, it's much less important that you can tell me the exact date that you took the first step. It's much more important that you can tell me if that's the step you're in right now. Like if I asked you, when did you meet Jesus? And you could tell me, there might even be tears in your eyes. Cool. But this would be my question. Are you trusting him now? And by trusting him, I mean, is your life in his hands now? Because a date in the past is not near as essential as the truth of where are you now. God, I pray that the truth of what we have wrestled with today, you will give us understanding God, you will shape our hearts to want to run to you. God, even as we sing now, we are admitting our heart that is prone to wonder. God, we, we are admitting, God, we need you. We need you. God, thank you for a promise. Thank you for an oath. Thank you for an anchor that is sure, it is firm. It is settled in the finished work of the cross. God, today, may that move some to trust you for the first time, and may it move your children, God, to an urgency of mission. It's in the name of Jesus we pray.